The scripture again is Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. If you don't have a Bible and you would like one, you are more than welcome to take it home. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31, page 846. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mother and children and hands, lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Ask for God's help as we come before his word together. Father, we want to thank you that you are a communicating God. You communicate in creation. We all know you exist in what you have made. Your wisdom and power are undeniable. You, com you communicate on the pages of scripture, Lord. We're so thankful you have not left us just to... Um, invent what we worship, but we can hear the voice of the living God, truly know you. Lord, best of all, you have communicated in the final word, your glorious son, Jesus Christ, who came and lived among us. And Lord, you're communicating even now. We believe that your Holy Spirit is here with us as we look at your word. So we ask that 
He would help me to teach this passage clearly and faithfully, and uh, Holy Spirit, that you would help us all open our minds, our ears, our hearts to see Jesus, to find our treasure in him, and to have eternal life. Lord, do the miracle we cannot achieve. We pray this in Jesus' name. For his glory, amen. Ask you a question, it'll seem uh, brutally obvious. How many of you wouldn't mind having just a little more money? Just a little more money. Seems like a dumb question. I mean, who's going to say no, please, don't, don't give me any more money? So why do you feel that way? Why would you like just a little more money? I was thinking about some reasons I would like a little more money. Now, not all of these are the way I feel, okay, just to protect the guilty. Um, I could provide a little more for those I love if I had a little more money. I could enjoy a little more of the many wonderful things this world has to offer if I had a little more money. I could have the satisfaction of knowing I'd, I'd kind of made it. I had been uh, successful. I could, uh, if I had a little more money, I could be uh, respected by others, or, or I could even respect myself a little more. If I, I wouldn't have to feel like a failure around others who have it better if I had a little more money. My future would feel more secure, and I wouldn't have to worry. I just had a little more money. Anybody feel like that, sort of, a little bit? Or you know someone who did once? In many cases, it's understandable. But here's the surprising question. Could that attitude actually be dangerous? So we are working right through the Gospel of Mark, and I want to begin by acknowledging that our text this morning is not fundamentally about money. Though money is just a key example of the problem we face. This passage is about far more than money. It's about actually the most important thing there could be. It's about inheriting eternal life. I wonder what you think about that idea. The idea of eternal life. Have you inherited eternal life? Will you inherit eternal life? How do you know? Maybe, assume that, maybe you assume that you have. Maybe you're not sure if you have or not and it worries you. Um, maybe you're not even sure if there is such a thing as eternal life. Well, Jesus, as we see, he was sure that eternal life is desperate, desperately real, and it's the greatest treasure you could ever have, and it's worth any cost. According to Jesus, you should do whatever you can to make sure you have eternal life. And the man who came to Jesus, he knew eternal life was real, and he knew he needed it. So as we watch their interaction and Jesus' response to it, we're supposed to learn something about ourselves and our severe difficulty when it comes to gaining what's most valuable. Eternal life itself. So I got four points for us this morning. The denial, the miracle, the provision, and the giver. The denial, the miracle, the provision, and the giver. 
Start of Mark 10, 17. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before Jesus and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So we want to think about this guy from, for a little bit. I think Mark means this man as to be kind of a case study for the human race. So from a human perspective, from the perspective of the day of, of this document, this guy seems to have it all. He's like the best of all of us. So here's what we see. If we take in Matthew's account of the story, Luke's account of the story, we know this guy by three terms. Can anybody tell me how we know him? Rich, young, ruler. Doesn't that sound amazing? He's rich. He's got lands. He's got savings. Great possessions. He's rolling. He's absolutely wealthy. And he's young. Imagine. He's achieved a lot at a young age. He's talented. He's successful. He's, he's rich, and he has youth with which to enjoy it. And he's a ruler. That most likely means synagogue ruler. So that means he's very, he's intelligent, he's a good leader, and he's, he's moral. He's quite religious. And it's rare for someone young to have that position. Rich, young, ruler? Not only that, we see his interaction with Jesus. He is sincere. He runs to Jesus. Um, esteemed leaders of Middle Eastern culture don't run in public. He does. It shows humility. It shows zeal. Not only that, he kneels before Jesus. If you remember, we, I know we've been in Mark a long time. If you remember the other synagogue ruler who came and knelt before Jesus, well, we could get that guy because he was asking Jesus to heal his daughter who was on the verge of death. But this man doesn't have any requests like that. His, his, quest is, his request is a spiritual question. What must I do to be saved? He has, he has great respect for Jesus. He calls him good teacher. For that day and time, that's not a normal title. From a Hebrew perspective, you reserve the word good for God alone. So this is a title of great respect for Jesus as a teacher. And so as I say, I think this man is a picture of the best of us. A case study for all of us. Moral, talented, successful, polite, respected, spiritual, humble, sincere, and rich. He's the guy you want your son to be, the man you want your daughter to marry, the fellow you wish you would have been. Here he is. And guess what? He knows it's not enough. We should really pause and listen. He knows it's not enough. He has everything you and I wish we would have to where if we said, oh, if we just had that, it would be enough. He has what you think would be enough, and listen to what he's telling you. It's not enough. He's haunted. He knows something is missing. Something is wrong. It's nearly breaking him. It brings him, it brings it to his, it brings him to his knees. And he has one question, right? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is eternal life? You think of the word eternal, lasts forever, but we need to realize it's it's far more quality than quantity. Anybody want to live forever in a nursing home? No thanks. That's not what I want when I think of eternal life. No, it's, 
It's the quality of actually God's life and you being brought into that. It's to know God as his child, as his friend. It's to be with him. It's to be loved by him. It's to be pleasing to him. It's to be forgiven. It's to receive his promises, his kingdom, himself, his joy, his new creation forever. It's to not face his wrath and to instead receive his blessing. What must I do to hand to receive, to inherit eternal life? It's, it's maybe the most important question you could ever ask. I hope you've asked that question. What must I do? How does Jesus answer him? It's so shocking to me. What would you expect your average street corner kind of religious, maybe even Christian person to say? What, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know, Jesus doesn't say, hey, man, you're already a great guy. Don't sweat it. It's not what he says. He doesn't say, just come down the aisle, make a decision. Pray a prayer. That's not what he says. He responds, his response is nothing we would expect. He responds with a question, verse 18. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus, what are you doing? And we remember Jesus a lot of times, in many ways, responds to people with questions. Why do you think he does that? It's usually not because Jesus is lacking information that only that person can give. Jesus uses questions to get people to ponder themselves and what they believe more honestly. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus wants this man to more seriously consider his view of goodness. And I think he draws him to think about goodness in three ways. Number one, the goodness of God. Number two, the goodness of himself. And number three, Jesus' own goodness. He's drawing this man to think about these things. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. And just how good is God? Just how good is God? And you think of this fellow before us, and he is like the poster child for a good person. Here he is. He's good. He's moral. He's successful. He's intelligent. He's polite. He's respectful. He's spiritual. He's seeking. And everywhere he goes, people go, oh, that guy, he's good. What would it be like for him to be in the presence of pure goodness? How about you sitting here today? Do you want to be in the presence of pure goodness? At first it sounds awesome, doesn't it? But then you realize, you know, I'm a pretty good person, right? I'm a, I'm a pastor, and like in comparison to a lot of people, oh, you know, I'm, I'm good, right? I love what's good. But see, there's this really dark, deep part of me where I have not loved good at all, and I've actually been quite inclined towards evil. I've actually loved evil things many, many times. And I'm afraid that if you put me in the presence of pure goodness, I would melt like ice cream in the sun. I would come undone. And you know what? Biblically, that's exactly what happened. What would happen. This guy would know Isaiah 6, right? What happens in Isaiah 6? Isaiah the prophet sees God holy, holy, holy. And look, I mean, talk about a good person. Isaiah the prophet, he's writing scripture. 
Look what happens when he sees the holiness and the goodness of God, Isaiah 6, 5. I said, what does he say? Woe is me. That means I deserve condemnation. For I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. Now just to ponder that, the best thing Isaiah does for God is speak for God. His lips are the main vehicle God uses in his life. It's the best part of him. And Isaiah says, before this God, the best part of me is unclean. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, the purity of God's goodness crushed Isaiah. Jesus is drawing this man to think more seriously about the goodness of God. Secondly, Jesus tests this man's view of his own goodness. I think it's kind of obvious from the context of the story. The man rather assumes he's rather good. His culture assumes he's good. God's blessing on his life seems to look like he's good. So Jesus highlights a section of God's law. And just, we know, right, if you read the Bible very much, what's the law supposed to do in you? If you really read the law seriously, is it supposed to pump you up and be like, dang, I'm good? Is that what it's supposed to do? No, most of the time, the law exposes you. So look at what Jesus does here, verse 19. Okay, you know the commands, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and your mother. Now, if you know your Ten Commandments, and I hope you do, if you don't, there's your homework today. You should know the Ten Commandments, okay? If you know the Ten Commandments, you realize that Jesus has begun, he has begun with the second part of the Ten Commandments, what we could call the second table of the commandments. Because you remember, the first four are about our relationship with God. They're God-oriented. And then after that, the commands are about our relationships with one another. Isn't that interesting? Jesus starts with the commands about one another. You've heard all these. And so Jesus is asking them, him then, are you good? Have you loved your neighbor? I just wonder how you would answer that question if Jesus was here and he could somehow ask you. We remember the Sermon on the Mount. We, we wonder if this guy missed that sermon. Right? Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't murder. And, and many of us, hopefully, would we be like, whew, finally a command. I have not killed someone else physically. And Jesus says, oh, that's, that's just the external to really keep the man, the command is to go all the way into the heart. So if you've ever just cursed somebody in your heart, if you've treated them as less than human and dignified and valuable, if you've demeaned them and insulted them from the heart, don't you see, Jesus would say, that's the seed of sin that grows into the tree of murder. You've committed murder. Well, now you hear it like that, and all of us are murderers. This man doesn't seem to understand the law like that. He hears Jesus mention these commands, and in verse 20, what does he say? Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Check. He thinks he's good, doesn't he? 
And he's just so used to this idea of himself as a good person that, yeah, of course I did that. And I can just imagine, I'm sure he's a, a, a great guy. I mean, some religious people, right, they can be severely nice and obedient. It, it, can, be, it can be done. Humans can do that in their strength. But you just, you wonder if he's ever thought more deeply or if all these expectations about how good he is and what the culture says about him, oh, you're the young synagogue ruler, you're amazing. He's, he's believed it. Thinks he's good. Anyone skeptical? I don't know. What do you think? Look at Proverbs 29. Again, this is from this guy's Bible. Who can say, I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. I think it's a rhetorical question. Who can say it? No one. This guy thinks he's good. Anyway, Jesus isn't going to go there with him. Jesus knows exactly what he needs. Look at, look at Mark 10, 21. It's really amazing. And Jesus, first it says, looking at him. It kind of gives you the chills. This is Jesus taking a moment. I mean, the, the guy came and knelt before him, and Jesus takes a moment and looks him right in the eye. He sees this guy. He sees what he's about. He sees what he needs. And then it says Jesus loved him, care about him had compassion for him. He wants the best for him. And you have to know that as you hear this next thing Jesus says. Jesus loved him. And look what he says, verse 21. You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. What's the one thing he lacks? Is it going and selling and giving? Or is it Follow me. See, here Jesus is making the man think about Jesus' goodness. Remember how Jesus didn't speak about the first table of the law when he first addressed this man. He mentioned the second table. Look what Jesus is doing. This is what I think he's doing. He's saying all, all those commands regarding our relationship to God, our posture to God, they are all fulfilled in this one thing, Jesus says, follow me. The way to have no other gods is to trust and follow Jesus. The way to have no idols and not invent your own worship, trust and follow Jesus. The way to rest in God is to trust and follow Jesus. Jesus is saying here, I am good as the Father is good, and I'm inviting you to follow me. And before we think of the demand that you know, takes all our attention, I want you to see Jesus' invitation. What did the man come seeking? Eternal life. What did Jesus just offer him? Eternal life. I want to give it to you. It's amazing. And look, Jesus mentioned treasures in heaven. It's as if Jesus is saying, you want, to sh you want me to show you what real wealth looks like? Do you want me to show you what it really means to be someone and have an identity? Do you want me to show you what it really means to have security? I'll show you true wealth that lasts forever. You'll be missing nothing. I'll give you what your heart is longing for. And as Mark's been telling us, Jesus can do it. He's the Christ. He's the Son of God. 
He gives eternal life. Follow me. So the man comes sincere asking, can I have eternal life? Jesus says, come, here it is, follow me. I'll answer all your need. But there's one thing in the way. Uh, Do you remember what the first command is of the ten? Do you remember? No other gods before me. See, there's something about God. We're told many times in the scriptures God is jealous. And I think the best illustration is marriage. So you think of God being like a husband, his people being like a bride. And God does not want to be a boyfriend. And he sure as heck does not want you having any other boyfriends. He wants it all. He gives it all. He wants it all. No other gods before me. He is not content to be one of your gods. Not interested. If you're going to come to him, he will be your God. Period. And Jesus has recognized something in this man. What does the man love the most? He loves his money. He has made an idol out of his money. He has lost an idolatry. Did you know you can be an idol worshiper without a little statue? In fact, it's far more common to be an idol worshiper with no statue than with a statue. What does it mean to be an idol worshiper? You know, I feel like I'm in one of those groups, right? Hi, my name's Matt. I'm a recovering idolater. Anyone else? Okay. Because here's, here's what idolatry is. It's really at the heart of sin. An idol is anything we look to give us what only God can give. An idol is anything other than God we put in the place of God. So when we make something our greatest treasure, our great identity, our meaning, our purpose, our value, our future, when we latch those heart needs that only God can and should give on anything other than God, we're worshiping an idol, and we serve those idols, don't we? We desire them, we prioritize them, we live for them. And in the Bible, Jesus talks about money in this regard all the time. Look at Matthew 6.24. No one can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one or love the other. He'll be devoted to one, despise the other. You can't have two ultimate kings. You can't have two real gods, functional gods, only one. You cannot serve God and money. It's the old saying. Some people use money and serve God. Other people use God and serve money. And we can see why this man loved his money. Think of his identity that flows from this, his power, his influence, his success, his respect from his community. And what if, what What if he actually did what Jesus said? What if he actually sold it and gave it to the poor and literally became one of Jesus' part of his disciples, his apostolic band, and followed Jesus to Jerusalem? What would happen? Think of what he would lose, because I'm going to tell you that's what he's thinking about. Think of what he would lose. He would lose his respect and identity in his culture because Jesus is going to be hated. 
he would lose that. He, he might be killed by the same authorities that killed Jesus. He loses security. Does he lose some ability to have different pleasures in life? He loses a lot of things if he does this. He's feeling that. I mean, it's like he himself would come apart. He would be dust. He'd be nothing. And yet, what is Jesus promising to him? Can you feel it? He's, his heart's saying, but I would lose my identity. What's Jesus saying? I will be your identity. But I, would, but I would lose the respect people give me. Yeah, but you'd be known and loved by God. But I would, but I would lose my security. I will be your security. Whatever you would lose, I'll satisfy. I'll fill it. That's what he's saying. Follow me. Trust me over your money. So here it is. The man said he wanted eternal life. Jesus offered it to him. It's the only legitimate, real way the man can come and belong to God is to let go of the idol and let Jesus be his Lord, his Savior, his King's treasure. And look at verse 22. Here's what I mean by the denial. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And the, and the language is really, I think, stronger than this translation. It communicates he's heartbroken, he's crushed, he just came undone. What's going on? Well, he has a desire, doesn't he? He has a desire to be right with God, live for God, find his meaning and identity in God. But what is he hanging on to? A false God. And Jesus says, you can have me, the real me, but you got to drop that thing and embrace me. And the man just feels the tension. He's coming apart because he's a slave to his God of money and he cannot escape its chains. I've had this experience in my own life. I've had it in helping others. Sometimes people want to trust their lives to Christ, but they know there's something God is calling them to in his word, an obvious obedience. You're gonna have to stop this or you're gonna have to start that and people who are seeking and interested, they seem to run into a wall sometimes and say, I just cannot do it. I can't let it go. It's a heart idolatry. So this man, look, look, religious, respected, sincere, intelligent, moral. He denies Jesus Christ and rejects the offer of eternal life. Unbelievable. What are we supposed to learn here? Here's what we're supposed to learn. The case study shows us, left to ourselves, even the best of us will deny Jesus due to idolatrous preferences for other things over him. Left to ourselves. This is what the sinful heart does. Denies Jesus and his offer of eternal life due to idolatrous preferences for other things. So some of you are asking this. Matt, are you telling me that Jesus is asking each one, of us to, each one of us to give away every penny away and follow Jesus to Jerusalem? I'm just gonna go ahead and say no. He's not asking you to do that. Actually, please don't do that because I don't know how our church is gonna care for all these homeless people now. Uh, and it's gonna be really hard to follow Jesus to Jerusalem because he's not actually here walking to Jerusalem right now. Don't do that. That's not what he's asking for, though. But let's not, let's not 
let's not climb off the hook here too quick. That's not what he's asking you for, but what is he asking you for? If you converted as an adult, do you remember what you used to prefer over Jesus? I bet some of you could tell stories like that before you came to Christ. You, you lived for these things. And you heard about Jesus, but you just didn't care. Something happened to you. Changed your whole value set. And maybe God is using this text right now to confront some of us that, oh my gosh, it's me. I'm religious, I'm moral, I'm interested in God, but I functionally, I live for other things. My identity is not Jesus. I don't seek to obey him in every way. We see here, don't we? Christianity is not just believing that Jesus exists. It's believing Jesus to the point where you repent of your sin, you trust him to save you, and you follow him as your king and your treasure according to his word. So that's the denial. It's actually, a, it's, if you're feeling like, well, that's a damper. Yes, it is a damper. We are, spo- we are supposed to sit here almost reeling because as we're gonna see in this next section, that's how the disciples feel. This is shocking. Now we see the miracle, verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. We, we think just for, a, just for a second about the Bible's approach to wealth. Uh, is money bad in and of itself? Sometimes you hear people say, money is the root of all evil. No, it's not. No, it's not. Money is not bad. Money's a gift. Money's good. Money's a tool for love. Love the people around you. Love the world. Love God with money. Money's a good and a blessing. But wealth can be an obstacle to salvation. You see, at the apostles' time here in the Gospel of Mark, it was understood that if you were rich, that was God's blessing. And the Bible's view is actually way more nuanced than that, right? Can you, can you be rich and an oppressive, prideful, tyrannical jerk? Well, of course. And in our day, it's kind of flipped, right? If somebody's rich, we're like, oh, the rich. And then we almost see the poor as having ethical value just because they're poor. The Bible's more nuanced than that, too. Can you be rebellious and sinful and poor? Yes. Can you be rebellious, sinful, and rich? Yes. Can you be righteous, love Jesus, and be rich? Yes. Can you be righteous, love Jesus, and be poor? Yes. It's, it's way more complicated than that. But in this time, right, riches were seen as, well, God is blessing this guy because he's righteous. And so when Jesus says how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom, you can see the disciples being like, What? If anybody entered the kingdom, it would have been him, and you're telling us him, he won't? They're amazed by his words. And, and part of what Jesus is doing here is he's insisting that wealth can be a significant obstacle to salvation. Now, first of all, some of you are like, well, it's not a problem for me. I'm not wealthy. Well, wealth is a term of comparison, isn't it? Compared to the world, we're all ridiculously wealthy. Compared to history, we're all mind-bogglingly wealthy. We are. We're wealthy. So we need to listen carefully 
Wealth can be a significant obstacle to salvation, and here's one reason. Because when we've worked hard, right, you got a good work ethic, and we've applied ourselves, and we had self-control and discipline, and we busted it, and those other people, they didn't do it, but we did. And now look at the fruits of our labor. When we have wealth, look at the attitude. It's so easy. Look what climbs in. I did it. I have it. I made it. I can do it. I worked hard. I can do it myself. Did you hear the religious leader's question? What must I do to inherit the kingdom? If I could build wealth, I could earn my way to the kingdom too, right? If I'm successful here, I could be successful there. God, you just tell me what to do. I'm a go-getter. I'm disciplined. I can do it. I can do it. Do you remember what we saw last week, Mark 10, 15? Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a what? Like a CEO? Like a go-getter? Like a diligent, successful cover of men's, I don't know. No, like a child. And, and remember what we said? What, what is notable about a child? It's not their innocence. It's their need. To inherit the kingdom, to go into eternal life is to know your need. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And so we have wealth. It kind of moves us towards, hey, I can do it. And Jesus is saying the only way you're getting into the kingdom is to realize from your heart you cannot do it. You need me. But notice Jesus doesn't just say salvation is difficult for the wealthy. Look at verse 24. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. What do you think about that? Well, that is, that is just as ridiculous as it sounds, okay? I can't even stick thread through the eye of a needle. I can't. Try a camel. You can't even stick a camel cigarette through the eye of a needle. Try a camel. It's laughable. It can't be done. In our vernacular, it might be a snowball's chance in hell. No chance. This is devastating. And again, in, in their day, the rich are the people who we assume they're entering the kingdom because they're righteous and they're blessed. So it's, it's the idea that they're the best of us. And that's why you see the apostles' response. If I preach this right, we should all feel this way a little bit. Look at verse 26. They were exceedingly astonished and said to him, who can be saved? And look what Jesus says in verse 27. With man, it is impossible. So did you hear this? You have a snowball's chance in hell of inheriting the kingdom on your own. That's what the text says. That's what Jesus says. On your own, left to yourself, you have a snowball's chance in hell of entering the kingdom. And for some of us, this is a new idea. It's going to make you a little angry. It's going to make you uncomfortable. What are you, what are you saying? The disciples are shocked, aren't they? They're astonished. Who can be saved? But then did you see what, God, what Jesus says next? With man, it is impossible, but what? With God, all things are possible. The rest of the Bible talks like this as well. Look at Romans 3. As we think of ourselves, how we inherit the kingdom or not, what we can do. 
Romans 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? And again, in this context, the, the Jews have the scriptures. They're religious. They try hard. Are we Jews any better off? What's the answer? No. We have already charged that all, and in the Greek, that word all means all. <laughs> all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Look at verse 10. As it is written, before God, right, none is righteous. So who's righteous before God? None. No one understands. No one seeks for God. But wait, didn't we just see the, the rich young ruler seeking? Yeah, but was he really seeking? Because when it was offered to him, what did he do? He turned it down. He wasn't really seeking for God. He was seeking for a get-out-of-jail-free card while he kept his money. On our own, no one honestly, deeply seeks for God. Here's the sober reality. No one genuinely wants the real God on his own, on her own. No one's righteous. Romans 8 again, Romans 8, 7, look at this. The mindset on the flesh. What is the flesh? It's just, it's self-orientation, self-invention. The mindset on the flesh is what? What's the next word? Hostile. What does hostile mean? It means you don't like him. You don't want him. Hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it what? Do you see the next word? It cannot. What is the Bible telling us? On your own, you cannot obey God's law? You cannot seek God? What does this mean? And friends, we are, we are facing the mysterious inability of broken desires. I know it's a little complicated, but I think, I think you'll understand. Did the, man, did the rich man have a desire for eternal life? Yeah. But then when it was offered to him, did he really want it in the end, or did he turn it down? He turned it down because he wanted something else more. I mean, in a way, he could have eternal life. It was offered. In another way, he could not. And you know where his inability came from? He did not want it like he should. He did not want it like he should. And so his desires being so twisted, he was a slave to that idol. Who did he serve, money or Jesus? He served money. That was his functional worship. And that's an example of each one of us left to ourselves. We don't like God. We don't want him. Yeah, we'll do some religiosity. Yeah, we'll do some spirituality. But when it comes down to it, we don't want to worship him. We want to make our own way. We are hostile to God. It is impossible for us to inherit the kingdom on our own. But here's the miracle. God changes hearts. Jesus looked at them and said, with man is impossible, but not with God. 
All things are possible with God. God can even change a sinner's heart. You want a story of that? Read the story about Zacchaeus later, a rich man. It's in the Gospel of Luke. Changed heart. Changed heart. And here's one picture of what Jesus does for us. Look at Ephesians 2. Did you know this about yourself? And you were, what's the word? You tell me. Dead. You were dead, but were you like a corpse dead, as in like not moving, not thinking, not caring? No, it's very strange. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's a very active deadness. And the deadness is our desires. It's, it's a hostility to God, a lack of love for him. But look, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. God makes us alive by opening our eyes to the emptiness of our idolatry, the bitterness of sin, and the goodness of Jesus. That's the miracle. Has God done the miracle to you? Has he shown you Jesus to where you love him the most, you trust him, and you want to devote everything in your life for his glory, whatever that means? We'll take the next two points far more quickly. But I want you to see in verses 28 to 31, now we're at the provision. In 28, Peter begins to say, see, we've left everything and followed you. So Jesus has said, salvation's impossible without God's work. And Peter said, well, we actually kind of did this. And you could feel the conflict in that rich young ruler again. Because as Jesus asked him to let go of the idol, you know, the big question is, is Jesus really better than my idol? Haven't you had to ask that before? Is it worth it to obey Jesus when it's painful? Is he really better? Jesus promises here in verses 29 to 31 that he's better, that you will never give more for the sake of Jesus than he will give back to you. He is a good king and savior. His goal for you is not ultimately to tear you down, but to build you up. And look at this promise, 29 to 31. Truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or brother or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Do you see Jesus' promise? I will, whatever you give up in obedience to me, I will make it up to you. I will be there for you. I will provide for you. And often that's to happen in the local church, isn't it? It's a huge reminder of who we need to be for one another. I heard a story at a missions conference recently about uh, a woman from India who had converted. And in some situations there, if you leave Hinduism and trust Jesus Christ, you are in physical danger, uh, your family kicks you out, it's as if you've betrayed the people, the family, she's lost everything, relationally, financially, she lost it all. She says, according to this man who knew her, it's worth it, it's worth it to have Jesus. But you know where she's found a new family, new provision, new relationships, new hope? It's in her local church. That's who we need to be for one another. 
when, when, when sometimes it's, it's hard choices to follow Christ, that's who we need to be for one another. In, in, in many ways, we are to be Jesus' provision for one another when we have to face sacrifices to follow him. But Jesus is promising, isn't he? I will provide. And then he says this, the last will be first. What do you think that means? Just eyeball test if you're sitting there, I guess. Who looks like he's first, the rich young ruler or the somewhat homeless disciples? I don't know. Who's, who's 401K do you want? Um, the rich young ruler looks first, and the disciples look last. When you sacrifice something to follow Jesus, you'll often look foolish in this life to the world. Some of us feel that. What are you doing? You're an idiot. Why would you sacrifice that? You'll look foolish. You'll look like you're last. And so many around you will look like they're first. Just wait till Jesus comes back. Great reversal. He cares about his people. He makes it up to them. Those who look like they're last, they'll be first. And vice versa, you can count on it. You can count on it. This is to give you courage and hope as you face the challenge of following Jesus. He will make it up to you. The first will be last. The last will be first. But you know, there's another way you can apply this. I think ultimately this applies to Jesus. Because this is verses 32 to 34. We're not going to cover them in detail. But where's Jesus going? He's told us many times in the book of Mark. Where's he going? He's going to Jerusalem. What's he going to do there? He's going to die on a cross. Talk about being last. I'll just go out on a limb and say you're never more last than when you're hanging naked on a cross while everyone mocks you. Jesus became last. But you know what? Just give it three days. What happens next? He's first. He rises from the dead. He ascends to heaven. He's king of kings and lord of lords, and he shall reign forever and ever. He's first. And this is what takes us to this last point, the giver. Here's what you need to see. Here's how the miracle works. Here's what the Holy Spirit shows you to open your eyes and change your heart. You know what we see here? Jesus himself is the ultimate rich young ruler. Eternally God, it was the Father's plan that Jesus Christ would set aside his glory and take on human flesh and give it all away. He left his kingdom and he gave it all away, even to the point of death on a cross. And he did it for you. He's he's the truly rich young ruler who gave it all away, even his own life, for you. He went to a cross naked, mocked, shamed, poor, last, taking on the wrath of God you and I deserved. He took our place. Look at what 2 Corinthians 8 9 says. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake, what did he do? He became poor so that you, by his poverty, 
might become rich. If you have Jesus Christ, you are now and eternally rich. You have him. And you have eternal life now. You are a child of God. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the, his entire kingdom, all his people. It's ours. We're rich. And when you see that with your heart, you're willing to let go of anything else in the way. And that's true saving faith. Jesus, I've got nothing but sin to offer you. I'm needy. I am poor. Save me. He says, I'm here. Take eternal life. And then you say, anything in my life is for your glory. So that's going to change your perspective on everything, isn't it? Including money. So we'll just conclude with these thoughts just as a summary. So what should our attitude towards money be? in light of a passage like this. We'll look at 1 Timothy 6. Those who desire to be rich fall into what? Temptation. Into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. You see the difference? It's the love of money, a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving some have wandered away from the, pay, from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. So as those who belong to Christ, what should we flee? The inordinate love of money. Out of order love of money. And how do we know we're not loving money too much? Look at 1 Timothy 6, 17, just same same chapter. As for the rich in this present age, charge them what? Not to be haughty. It's not your identity. Nor to set their hopes on the what? The uncertainty of riches. But on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would do the impossible miracle, even uh, in this place this morning, if anybody has been living for false, self-invented gods, I pray you just gently reveal that to them, and that even right now, they would trust themselves to Jesus and see that he's infinitely better, that he provides, he is the great giver who gave himself up to make us rich in him, in who he is and his promises, and what he has for us. Lord, for those of us who are believers today, remind us, Lord, warn us to not put our hope in money. Lord, as we work hard, as we are ambitious, as we do strive to be wise and save and plan, all good things help us to set our hope ultimately on you and to give sacrificially to your kingdom. 
let us set our hope in God and have our hands on what is truly life, belonging to you. Uh, Take and apply these words to our hearts and our minds, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.